0: All right, friends. If you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn to First Peter chapter four. We are in the home stretch of our series, Faith in Exile, where we've been walking through the uh, Peter's first letter to Christians in uh, the area of Asia Minor, and um, so we have only three, Lord willing, three passages left uh, to discuss together. Um, in this series, let me give you a little bit of an overview of what what we've seen so far in First Peter. Very broadly, um, Peter has first of all told us about the great salvation that we've been given through Jesus Christ and the eternal inheritance that is being guarded for us in heaven. That was really the very beginning, First Peter 1 1 through chapter 2 verse 10 speaking about the salvation and the inheritance that's coming and all the kind of implications of what that means to now be his people. Um, After that, the next major section of the letter, um, from chapter 2, verse 11, up through what we looked at last week, chapter chapter 4, verse 11, he exhorted us to live holy lives in a hostile world, demonstrating that our treasure is Jesus by not living as the unbelievers around us live. And so there were lots of ways that that took shape, but the overall exhortation was be holy, right? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. uh, And then he fleshed that out for two full chapters. And so now in chapter four, verse 12, he introduces another and the final section, uh, main section of this letter. And he turns mainly to instructions regarding how to live within the church. So it's been sort of a, here's how to live in the world in light of the unbelievers around you, and now it's your relationships within the church. Here is how we ought to live, right? How Christians are to share life, encourage each other, relate to their pastors, and trust in God's promises and the like. And so um, we come to this new and final section today. Let me read for you verses 12 through 19 of 1 Peter chapter 4 and then we'll uh, take these uh, verses uh, one section at a time. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I see four... Movements in this passage for sort of exhortations for what to do, how to think, how to live in light of suffering. And if you're getting tired of the topic of suffering, um, just bear in mind that this was the situation of this first generation of Christians who experienced marginalization and, uh, and social um, sort of rejection, and increasingly, as the years would go by, Uh, even formal uh, persecution against Christians um, systematically, uh, even leading to many of their imprisonment and and death. And our own situation is uh, not quite as extreme as that, but certainly we see uh, the hostility that the world around us has toward the Christian faith and toward Christians as people, to the extent that we stand on principles and truths of God's word that are timeless and unchanging, uh, we sound really out of step with our culture uh, and, and with the values and the, the beliefs of the unbelieving system uh, in which we live. And so suffering will come. The fiery trial, as he calls it, will come upon you. And so it is not a matter of if It is a matter of when, he says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. We know that it will come. If you're not in a season of suffering and and oppression or or marginalization because of your faith right now, you will. At some point, it will come. It will happen. And so we're told to prepare for it. The first thing I want to point out is just uh, this word at the very start of verse 12. The word beloved. Beloved. It's very easy to skip right past that. It's one little word and we want to get into the meat of the text. But it's so important to recognize that the context in which we experience suffering is the context of acceptance with God. We are His chosen and beloved people. He has set his love upon us. And so when he says, Beloved, don't be surprised. He is reminding us that we belong to God and that he loves us. We are his. We are his chosen exiles. Right? That's how the way he began this letter. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. We are his beloved. And so let that just be a reminder to us that suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment. Rather, it is a sign of his commitment to purify and to cleanse us for his glory and for our eternal joy. We are his beloved. So here's the first uh, point that I see, the first exhortation that Peter makes for us here. And you'll see a blank to fill out. Here it is. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. And this is the strange paradox of Christian hope, that we can rejoice at our sufferings. Sounds unusual, sounds counterintuitive. Why would we rejoice and be glad at our suffering? Usually that is not our instinctive response. How can this be true? Well, I think he gives us a hint about how it's true in the word that he uses to describe are suffering. And he uses this word here, fiery. The fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. If you know First Peter, and if you remember what we've looked at, this might remind you of another verse we've seen, namely First Peter 1 7. 1 Peter 1 7, where he said In this, that is actually in the inheritance, the eternal reward that's coming, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I believe by calling it a fiery trial, he is intentionally reminding us of the trials that he spoke of in chapter one, which are a testing and a purifying experience. The the trials that we go through are intended to test our faith, the genuineness of our faith, and that it results in something that is more precious than gold that perishes Though it is tested by fire, and so these trials—the first reason that we can rejoice in our suffering is that we know that these trials are for our testing. They are to strengthen our courage, to refine our faith, to deepen our dependence upon Christ, and ultimately to gain the eternal glory that that awaits us. We've seen. Already that the pathway that Christ walked through suffering led to his exaltation and his glory. And that's the very same path that he calls his people to walk. We walk through suffering, which brings with it glory that is to come. Because God is using our hardships to test us, we know that he has redemptive purposes for our suffering. It's not meaningless. It's not random, and it's certainly not cruel. God is not a bully being mean to us. It is for our good and ultimately for our joy. As strange as that sounds to a casual uh, hearing, our suffering for Christ's name is intended to strengthen us and to refine us, to sanctify us, and ultimately to prepare us for great glory and joy that is to come. So our rejoicing at our suffering is in two specific realities. We see two particular things that he draws our attention to in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So the first reason we can rejoice in our suffering is that we are sharing Christ's suffering. We are sharing Christ's suffering. I'm reminded here of a passage in uh, the Book of Acts, where the apostles are uh, being uh, detained um, and and questioned and interrogated, and all manner of, of uh, hardships are befalling them because they're preaching Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 41 that the apostles were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What an interesting and, and, and paradigm-shifting sort of perspective on suffering for Christ. They were overjoyed to suffer for Christ because they saw it as a sort of a badge of honor that God would count them worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. It was in Christ's name and in the pathway of Christ's suffering that they experienced suffering, and they rejoiced in that reality. And you can only find joy in suffering if you are committed to, to a cause that is higher than your own comfort and bigger than your own life. If my comfort and my life and well-being are my highest values and what I'm pursuing the most um, committedly, then suffering is nothing but a distraction. It's nothing but uh, a mistake along the way and to be avoided at all costs. But if our cause is something bigger than ourselves... And higher than our own comfort or pleasure, then suffering for the sake of Christ is not a distraction and it's not a mistake. It's actually an honor that we can be counted worthy to suffer along with Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ so much that enduring injury and insult for his sake is an honor to you and not a disruption? That's a gut check question for each of us. Lord, make it so. Make it that we love you so much that suffering for your name and for your sake is worthy, is is a worthy endeavor. So that's the first reason that he gives us in verse 13, uh, that, that we rejoice in the midst of our sufferings. The second one is in that very next line in verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad. When his glory is revealed. And so I would say there that we will share in Christ's glory. So if we share in Christ's suffering in this age, we will share in Christ's glory in the next. Paul says in Romans 8 17 that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's amazing to think that at Christ's glory, when he is glorified in his return and enthronement, that we will be glorified with him. What a, what a humbling uh, and remarkable reality. But that's the truth. As we suffer in this broken world for Christ's sake, we experience the glory that he reveals and shares with us when he returns. There's another passage I'd love to show you. This is from uh, the mouth of Jesus himself. Excuse me, i got to find it again. In uh, Matthew five, verses ten through twelve, this is uh, the part of part of the Sermon on the Mount that's often called the Beatitudes. The blessed are such and such. Here's how he closes that section: Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Wait, why am I blessed when people are reviling me and persecuting me and saying false, terrible things about me on account of Christ? Well, here is verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just as... All of those who have been faithful messengers and mouthpieces for Christ um, in the old covenant and in the new covenant in the church uh, era in which we live. um, We will suffer if we're faithful to Christ and that suffering leads to glory. And so rejoice and be glad because as we suffer with him, we are storing up glory and joy that we'll share with him in eternity. So don't be surprised when suffering comes upon you. Rejoice. And just as one quick word of exhortation here, I think that the instruction there, not to be surprised, is important because I think we can easily slip into an expectation of life that things should generally go pretty well, that we should generally have a smooth, comfortable life. And since we know Christ, he'll sort of take care of all of our needs and we won't be... um, hungry and we won't be um, hurt and things will go generally well for us. And if we have that kind of an expectation, then when things are hard and when we suffer for righteousness, that is for doing the right thing, we'll be surprised. And that surprise will take our eyes off of the Lord and lead us astray in all kinds of ways. So don't be surprised. Rejoice when the fiery trial The second thing I think we're exhorted to do in light of the fiery trial is to remember God's presence. The promise of the gospel is exactly this, the presence of God with his people. In chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said, Christ also suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. That is the result of Christ's atonement for his people, that he has brought us to God. And in fact, that's what God has been working on since our ancestors listened to the serpent in the garden and shattered their fellowship with God. He has been working to bring his people back to him. And because Christ has taken away our sins on the cross, and caused us to be born again to a living hope through his resurrection, we are with God again. And, even better, God dwells within us by his Spirit. Look within these verses to see where I get that from. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that phrase reminds me of the baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, where uh, he goes into the waters of baptism. And when he comes up from the baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down, it says, as a dove and rests upon him. That itself is an echo of Isaiah's prophetic language of the chosen servant of God, that the Spirit of God would rest upon him. In the same way that the Spirit of God rested upon Christ, empowering his mission and his work of bringing God's people back to him, the Spirit of God rests upon us and is present with us when we experience suffering for the sake of Christ. When you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed Because it means that the Spirit of God is with us. It's sort of like your suffering on behalf of Christ is kind of a certificate of authenticity. That you truly belong to Him. And that His presence in your life is an indelible reality no matter what you face. The fact of suffering for Christ's sake is not a sign of God's abandonment. It's a sign of God's presence. He's marked us as his people. He's given us his spirit to empower us and enable us to carry on faithfully. Friends, in your trouble, in your day of pain, in your loneliness and rejection, draw near to God in prayer, in praise, and he will draw near to you. That's the promise of James 4.8. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Now, he gives us a clarification here, a bit of a warning, to make sure that our suffering is undeserved. In other words, don't don't think that there's the same kind of blessing and honor in suffering for your own foolishness, for your own sin. And then he gives us a list of, of particular sins, right? Uh, don't go asking for suffering by making foolish choices and dishonoring God, such as murder, theft, evil doing is just a broad term for doing what is wrong, and and meddling. Isn't this interesting? Meddling is to sort of stick your nose where it doesn't belong, just to be kind of in other people's business or other people's way. And if, and if he's thinking of uh, ways that we sin and bring upon suffering, then this could be the the sort of broken relationships that come uh, or or the things that come upon us because we sort of we're just not minding our own business right we're, we're sort of trying to we're busybodies trying to be in other people's lives in ways that are not welcome or appropriate so don't let none of you suffer because of your own sin and here's a few particular examples of it yet and here's back to the positive of it if anyone suffers. As a Christian, that is because of your faith in Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Scott McKnight says, nothing is more damaging to the glory of God and the growth of the gospel than the sins of his people. So indeed, let's be sure that our actions do not bring reproach upon Christ or shame upon the church. But to the extent that we suffer because we're being righteous, because we're standing for God's truth and God's word, because we're uh, sharing uh, the good news with others, to the extent that our suffering is because we have trusted in Christ and are faithful to him, rejoice. Don't be ashamed don't go hiding but recognize that God is with us and we have his uh, presence uh, in the midst of it give him glory give glory to him by facing your suffering with faith and even joy remember God's presence number three the third exhortation in light of the fiery trial when it comes upon us is this welcome God's discipline. We should welcome God's discipline in our lives. Look at these verses, verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs eleven thirty one, the Greek translation of Proverbs eleven thirty one: uh, If the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I want to make a couple of notes here and then show you another passage that I think will help us understand this. Judgment in in this context, I think in this verse, is akin to discipline, not condemnation. So when he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, that's God's family, that's God's church, I don't think he means he's going to start condemning people and he's beginning by condemning his church. That's not what he means. In fact, we know, as Peter has told us over and over again, that because we are God's people uh, and God's presence is with us, he will vindicate us in the end. He will save us from his wrath. The world will be judged, condemned, and we will be saved. So judgment here does not mean condemnation. It means discipline. Let me show you um, another verse uh, or passage that that may be helpful for us in considering the discipline of. Of God, Look at at Hebrews chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is, I think, what is in view in verse 17, where he says the judgment is to begin at the household of God. I think he means God is using these trials, as he's already told us, to test us. He is using these trials and the suffering that we experience for his name to cleanse us, to shape us to correct us at times if our mindset or our lives are out of step or out of sync. The, the suffering that we face is is, is restorative. It's, it's for our good and for our sanctification. I think when he says uh, in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, you see that, that word there? Um, that word literally means with difficulty. Uh, the, if the righteous is with difficulty saved, which I don't think means God is having a hard time saving us. <clears throat> I think it means that we are saved through difficulty, right? Through a pathway that is marked by hardship and suffering. And if the righteous are saved with a difficult path, through many trials and tribulations will uh, we enter the kingdom of heaven, then how much more so would that be the case for those who do not Obey the gospel of God. Again, that's those who don't believe, who are not followers of Jesus. Because the call of the gospel is to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Those who disobey the gospel have not repented and have not trusted. And so that, that's a shorthand for unbelievers, for those who are not in Christ. Reminded here of the line from John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. There's this confidence that we can have in the grace of God that even though dangers and toils and snares are ours, the grace of God is with us and will carry us through. Sam Storm says, and speaking of the way that this relates to, like, if God's people who are his beloved, his sons and daughters are disciplined in this way and receive this kind of trial and testing and suffering, then how much more so and even how much worse is the situation going to be for those who do not know Christ and who are not obedient to his gospel? Sam Storms says, If sin is so hated in God's sight that even his children are made to suffer discipline so as to purify their souls, what must be the fate? of those who disobey the gospel. That's a sober thought. May it drive us to fervent prayer and intentional action in our efforts to invite others to repent and believe the gospel. God disciplines those he loves. We are his beloved children and our suffering is not an indication that he's left us. It's a reminder that he loves us and he's committed to our holiness. And our eternal joy. Welcome God's discipline. When we suffer for His name, we thank God that He's at work for our sanctification, for our good. And the final exhortation we see in these verses is simply this. Trust God and get to work. Trust God and get to work. You see that? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good, right? Trust God and get to work. He calls us in our suffering to do exactly what Christ did in his. Remember chapter 2, verse 23? He said, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did in the midst of his suffering that led all the way to the cross. He entrusted himself to the Father, knowing that his judgment would be right and true and just. And in the same way, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we suffer for the name of Christ, we entrust ourselves to God. We say, we know that you can handle this and that this will all be made right in the end. When we accept suffering as God's purifying discipline, and when we rejoice at the honor of being found worthy to suffer for Christ's name, we are making a statement of faith to God. We are saying in that attitude and in that posture, we are saying, Lord, I trust you to take care of me. I trust you to be near me through this. I trust you to carry me safely through the troubled waters of this life and on to the eternal shores of your glorious presence. This is the hope that we have as Christians, and so we know that no suffering we experience is meaningless. No suffering is wasted. God is using it for our sanctification and ultimately for our joy, because this pathway of suffering leads to glory and exaltation and sharing in the very glory of Jesus Christ at his revelation. Friends, if you have not rested your souls in Jesus Christ as the one who's provided a way back to him. The one who's atoned for your sins through his death on the cross. The one who's given you a living hope through his resurrection from the dead. Trust in him. Turn from your sins. Name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you will be saved. And you have this hope that no matter what we face in this life, our souls are his, and we will be safe. And in the meantime, do good. Get to work, right? Don't just sit on the couch and say, I know God will handle this. Be busy about the work of God's kingdom. Entrust your soul to the faithful creator and continue doing good, even if the good you're doing is what brings hardship and suffering into your life. Keep doing good. I'll close with one uh, more quote from Sam Storms. He says, Only through the sustaining power of the Spirit and in anticipation of the coming glory of Christ at the consummation, that is the final kingdom, will we find strength and joy to suffer in such a way that God is made ever more famous as his majesty is revealed.